This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, also Spruck Zarathustra. everyone welcome to watchers of tomorrow the sci-fi review critique show that's putting the humanities back in science fiction i've decided is our new catchphrase for the minute excellent i like it i am gepwin and i am joined as always by my friend and co-host dr Isix. hi this week we are doing a movie because it's episode yes. 50 the 50th anniversary episode yeah that's a long time yeah, <laughs> we're doing this almost a little more than a year, technically. Yeah, yeah, because we had a little break there. Yeah, why did That's I decide crazy. to start this in summer? It's awful. I don't know. <laughs> it's the worst. <laughs> because we didn't, we won't, we were excited to do it, and we didn't want to wait. You know what's great this summer? I think I want to lock myself in a small room where I can't have fans or air conditioners running. Yeah, that does make things t- tricky. So maybe we should get get, get on to the, uh, what we're doing today. Well, some, some sort of um, uh, one of those greatest movies of all time sort of thing. Yeah, one it? of those deals. Yeah. This week we watched <laughs> 2001 A Space Odyssey. And we watched yes. it like 19 years too late. A little bit, yeah. We're, we're, uh, we're a little behind the times. We're experiencing some, some Z-Rust here. It's fine. You know, Pan American is going to come back any time now, right? <laughs> I'm assuming most people have heard of this one. Yes, it is one of those movies that kind of... It's like the Shakespeare of science fiction movies. It kind of just keeps showing up in places. People reference it constantly. Uh, You know, The Simpsons have referenced it. Futurama referenced it. I'm pretty sure Star Trek has in some fashion. Uh, And it just pops up in all sorts of places. You know, know, some involving science fiction, some very much not. And it's just everywhere. Yeah, it's even in Kerbal Space Program. Yes. (laughs) Which is a video game for people who don't spend too much time on YouTube. (laughs) The, The most important video game of all time, by the way. So this film was released in 1968, which means it is the most contemporary thing with old school Star Trek that we have yet done as a movie. Indeed. Uh, In fact, there's one of the actors uh, in this movie is in Star Trek, at least a episode of. That's fun. I missed that. Yes. (laughs) We'll get that in a moment. (laughs) So this film was co-written and directed by legendary director Stanley Kubrick. And and also written by Arthur C. Clarke. Yes, and it's actually kind of an interesting story, the uh, collaboration that kind of came together for this. Because uh, Kubrick was like, yeah, I want to do something cool. And people were like, hey, you should like go hang out with this Arthur C. Clarke guy. And Kubrick's like, I don't know. He seems kind of like a shut-in. And then they, he goes to like Sri Lanka where Clark hangs out. And they're like, oh, yeah, we could get a hit it off. And it's like, give me a short story and we could adapt into a movie. And... And so Clark's like, here, have this story called The Sentinel and uh, like five others or something like that. And we'll figure it out something. And then it sort of grew out of that. And uh, the the long-term plan had been that Clark would write the novelization sort of at the same time as uh, Kubrick was getting the movie together. And uh, Kubrick would have uh, first uh, author on the screenplay and Clark on the uh, the novel. And well, that kind of worked out, I guess. Uh, apparently it's one of these things where you have to read the book to understand the movie, which I feel like means they didn't make the movie well enough 
I have to disagree here, and uh, I have a feeling that we probably don't see quite eye to eye on this one. Uh, the movie and the book are kind of very intentionally different experiences. I've only read part of the book, unfortunately, so I'm not going to be super authoritative on it. I've actually read one of the sequels. It's kind of weird. Anyway, <laughs> but the, the movie is very much trying to be more of an, a, a visual sound experience as opposed to uh, necessary, uh, necessarily the, the whole this is what's actually going on sort of stuff, sort of to, to inspire you to, to, to engage in wonder and, and, and to sort of contemplation, while the novel is more, more like just, you know, you know, your science fiction sort of writing there. Or you actually know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll agree the movie's trying to be a big visual something or other experience, and we can get to that later. I know you, you have the majority opinion on this movie. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to say it's perfect. There are some bits I'm like, eh. <laughs> but uh, overall, I really do enjoy this movie. And uh, one of the reasons I uh, picked it for my uh, pick at this around here is because it's a movie that has kind of influenced me a fair bit as far as my own uh, creative works and things like that and sort of how I think about uh, space and the universe and all that jazz. Um, and uh, sure, I, you know, I've maybe evolved quite a bit from that original influence but it is sort of one of those sort of fun, uh, foundational um you know quote texts no it's a movie uh, as far as my own sort of experience in science fiction so that's kind of one of the reasons i wanted to sort of uh, cover it um but yeah that's shall we get into it we have other things to talk about yeah yeah we haven't done actors <laughs> yes <laughs> this, I'm is excited. My, uh, this is my second time ever watching this i saw it once when i was a kid with my parents and I remember being deeply confused. And this is the second time that I've watched it. And it's been at least 20 years between. It's been so long. You're now after the, when the sequel took place. Yes. Which I <laughs> hadn't even heard of until I started researching this. Yeah, It wasn't nearly as well known or watched. Um, oh, I, I, I generally enjoyed this, the sequel. And actually, if you're looking for explanations on what some of the stuff is that's going on, though not everything... Um, some of that does, you know, get a little bit more better laid out in, uh, in what's in that one there. Yeah, I did read the synopsis to the sequel later on. But, uh, but um, shall we touch on actors? Yes, we've got. It was difficult for me to find the main actors because they switch characters partway through the movie without explanation. In a uh, weird it's way, sort of a change of focus. Yeah. So I believe the main main character is probably uh, Keir Dullier playing Dr. Dave Bowman. Yes. We also have Gary Lockwood playing Dr. Frank Poole, who's the other dude. And uh, that's the guy we've seen before. It's Star oh, Trek. His name does sound a bit familiar. Yeah. Uh, remember in, uh, you know, where no man has gone before? Oh, was he the... Gary Mitchell! God dude? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, he doesn't have to wear... He's he, no, no crazy contacts that hurt your eyes this time, though, so... I was having so much trouble telling all these 60s white dudes apart. Yeah, it's... A, you kind of have to pay close attention to their, like, facial structure or something like that. <laughs> it's like, yes, it's another guy with dark hair, white skin, jumpsuit. Okay. <laughs> also, William Sylvester playing Dr. Haywood Floyd, who is the earlier protagonist. Yeah, he kind of 
is you know fades from focus uh, about halfway through the movie and the only character that anyone remembers from this thing uh, Douglas Ryan as the voice of Hal 9000 Hal 9000 ultimate computer dude he was known for a lot of narration and voiceover work at the time and apparently he was picked to be the voice of the computer after uh, they heard his narration on something called the universe so we should check out this universe thing and see if it sounds like Hal. Apparently he was originally cast as the narrator because earlier versions of the script told you what was going on. But later they changed it to being the voice of the computer. Here, here's a couple other sort of little factoids here. Um, so this is actually the, the, I guess, sort of the quote final version of the movie is actually like almost 20 minutes shorter than the original version that oh. uh, Cooper was getting together. Sheesh. <laughs> and second, uh, the for the premiere of this movie, over 200 people actually walked out. Yeah, 240. Yes. <laughs> and for the first month of its run, the theaters were so empty, the studio almost pulled the movie. Yeah. The interesting fact that I learned at watching the documentary 2001 Making of a Myth was that they were going to pull the movie out of theaters, but the theater owners called the studios and said, so we're seeing an uptick in attendance because the stoners have started coming to the movie. <laughs> and then they keep bringing their friends. Yes. <laughs> the friends are like, you might be high as a kite here, but I'm really like getting crazy on this too. So, you know. No, they were <laughs> all <I'm> high. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe I'm high too, but you know. <laughs> they were all high. And yeah, so, I don't know how this could have been 20 minutes longer. This movie is the movie version of turning in a five-page paper that is a half-page paper that you double-spaced and used long words. And uh, increase the margins for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Though all, all the same, uh, my, uh, my synopsis is about 2,000 words in length. Though it, it, is, it is padded a few bits. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't make it 2,001 words? It's actually like... 2200 that's close you know <laughs> all right we should probably jump in i don't know how you're gonna make this longer than a five minute synopsis honestly but i'll, I'll do the the 10 second synopsis afterwards <laughs> anyway so we begin in darkness ominous music plays setting the mood for us during an overture and then also sprock zarathustra plays as we round the moon and see the sun rising beyond the earth the moment is very powerful and visual that's the, the dun, 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 dun thing everyone remembers. Yes. The dawn of man. We are shown landscapes at dawn, presumably somewhere in Africa. The place is arid. After seeing some bones, we see some early hominids hanging out uh, near some tapirs. Jaguar shows up to ruin one of the hominids' day, and then later there's some arguments over water while another group of folks creep in on the first group. And the, the jaguar... Just jumps a dude. Like, I'm pretty sure they just had a jaguar attack this actor in a in a monkey costume. Just like, kitty attack! Yeah. <laughs> also, tapers are South American. Yeah, so this is a little confusing. <laughs> the, uh, the, new, the, the visitors to the uh, uh, first group are spotted, and then the yelling commences. The invading group chases the first group off and uh, away from uh, the watering hole. Then that first group has a frightful night trying to hide from the big kitties. And the next morning, our ancestors wake up and see something. 
Very unsettling music pl starts playing as they spot the monolith. It's shaped similar to a chocolate bar and stands upright. The hominids freak out and yell at it as it simply stands there. One of them touches it. Others come up and interact with it as well as it has shown to be safe. Later, the crew is hanging out by some bones. We have a vision of the sun coming over the monolith and light at the moon. The hominids look at the bones. They pick up one and start playing with it, knocking around other bones, then smashing the bones like a club. Then they smash the broken skull. Skull smashing is interlaced with the tapir with being felled. Our clubber has some meat now and is getting to eating, as does the clubber's crew. Later, it's time to visit those jerk faces that took over the watering hole. Clubber crew approaches an, uh, the invaders and starts cl uh, clubbing one of the invaders to death, scaring the rest off. The clubber tosses his bone up in the air and... Suddenly, satellite. They pan over to the earth as craft, devices, and installations float by. The music swells. The Blue Danube is the tune as we take in the majesty of space and the creations of tomorrow. Today, there is a wheel in space. A Pan-American space shuttle approaches. Inside is a sleeping man in a floating pen. The stewardess in Spaceballs the headwear comes in, using her sticky shoes to overcome microgravity. And that's just the start of the beautiful sequence that is all about docking with the space station and it takes a few minutes. It's spinning. Everything spins. This is probably the origin of my problem with everything spinning in movies. <laughs> just keep rotating, man. This going to be fine. <laughs> Late... Later, the man is on the space station, getting off an elevator. He converses with the receptionist about meeting a Mr. Miller. Miller shows up, greets him, and then has the visitor enter a verification kiosk, where we learn a little bit, bit, a bit about him. He's Dr. Haywood Floyd, and he's going to the moon. Floyd and Miller banter until uh, Floyd stops by a picture phone booth to make a phone call. He discovers he's a dad, and he's going to, to miss his daughter's birthday party. Oh, no. Floyd meets then some Russians. They're scientists who are doing some antenna work. And they want to know why Floyd's going to this Clavius place on the moon. There's a lot of weirdness they've noticed about this Clavius. And, you know, no one's being able to uh, make contact and no one's allowed to land. And the Russians mentioned a, there's some sort of virus outbreak of unknown origin. Floyd says, you can't really discuss things, man. It's all right. It's pandemic Galaxy Edition. <laughs> it's like Andromeda Strain, but on the moon. <laughs> Speaking of the moon, to the moon! We get more space travel art and stewardesses space balls the headwear. The Blue Danube plays again and we engage in, hey, this is the future type stuff. Finally, we can come down to, for a landing. Meeting time with the suits. We meet Halverston, who gets up and starts speaking before, just turn, before turning it over to Floyd. Those assembled have discovered something. He comments about the cover story on settling people, but stresses the need for secrecy. He comments about culture shock needing to be... Con uh, you know, conditioned to avoid and all that fun jazz, then there will be a plan to reveal it all to the public at some point. But, you know, Halverson thinks Floyd and the meeting continues without us. Because we're now flying a craft over the surface of the moon! More beautiful shots of unsettling music later. We see Floyd and his friends in his spacesuits starting to eat. After some banter, Floyd has showed some pictures of magnetic anomalies. Uh, that's how they found it. And given the dig, it seems to have been deliberately buried. Four million years ago, man. They have no clue what it is. They land and we are shown an open pit excavation site. Within is a monolith. The gang, in spacesuits, head on down. The creepy music builds. Floyd touches the monolith. They line up for a, new f for a few photos. Then there's an ear-piercing tone that 
all those assembled here, including the, the viewer, because I had to turn down the music, <laughs> uh, the sound, the sound there. Yeah. Um, they, <laughs> they look up and see the sun coming over the monolith in line with the earth. Uh, it took me a while to realize the creepy music they play every time one of the monoliths shows up is the same music they use in Left for Dead when a witch is nearby. I did not notice that. <laughs> huh. I'll have to pay attention to that next time I play Left for Dead. <laughs> the Jupiter mission. 18 months later. Spaceship Discovery 1 slowly moves on by. It is long with a bulb up front, engine section in the back, and long spine between, and a big antenna dish about halfway up along it. Inside, we see a man jogging around in circles, as in along a curved floor where every direction is down, implying it is rotating. We see coffin-like containers with humanoid shapes. There are two beds, and we see a red light. Red light represents the ship's computer, HAL. The men uh, are Dave Bowman and Frank Poole. Lunchtime, while we tune into the BBC, seems they gave an interview which helps uh, with some exposition. <clears throat> we learn that the three crew are in hibernation, but there before they left, there's a supercomputer named HAL 9000, who is hella smart, Hal's a powerful AI that uh, watches over the ship and monitors everything, including the hibernation system. The 9000 computer series is apparently foolproof and incapable of error. Hal likes working with people and is constantly busy, so Hal's existence is fulfilling. Bowen doesn't know if Hal's got real emotions. This, this whole sequence implies that the people who wrote this never used a computer in their lives. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> Though, I guess in the 60s, it was a little bit different as far as the user experience goes. But still, there's maybe some consulting they could have done. They made computers infallible. Yes. <laughs> you know, but uh, I think we can maybe touch on about that, some of that a little bit later. Hmm. Uh, later, Frank gets a transmission from his parents. They wish him a happy birthday. Later, time to play chess with Hal. Hal, of course, wins. Dave, in his various recreational activities, starts sketching the hibernating crew. And Hal wants to see the sketches. Upon seeing them, he compliments Dave's improved skill. Hal has a question, though. He wonders if Dave is having second thoughts about the mission. Dave's like, what do you mean? Hal elaborates about some of the odd things about the mission. Hal comments about the strange stories, like something being dug up the moon, and the tight security, and the early hibernation of the trio. Dave calls him on this probably being Hal doing his work for the psych report. Now, that Hal. Hal then says he has picked up a fault in the big dish transmission system. They got apparently 72 hours to fix it before it fails and they lose contact with Earth forever. Uh-oh. One punch card printed out later and several scenes of the guys working about you know, the ship. Uh, they get a reply from Mission Control to give them the go-ahead to replace the part. You get the first view of the pods. Spheres with little grappling arms. With heavy spacesuit breathing sounds, the pod launches. This is the halfway point of the movie, by the way. Dave exits the pod with a replacement gizmo, and the breathing sounds change as he floats on over to the dish. Dumbest spacewalk in history. He's not even tied to anything. Yeah, this is very ill-advised. <laughs> he starts about a mile out from the ship and jumps out of the pod and propels himself towards the satellite dish. Hope you don't miss. <laughs> After many tense moments later, the part is changed out and everything seems okay. Later, they're checking the old part, and there's nothing wrong with it. Hal suggests to put the old module back and then just kind of let it fail. That way, they know that what's wrong for sure. Mission Control gives the go-ahead for this, but they also suggest 
might be that Hal might be in error. Hal pipes up and says, I hope you're not concerned by the possibility being in, 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 being in error and stuff, guys. Dave's like, you know, Hal, what's, what's going on? What's going on? Hal chimes back. That's probably just human error, guys. You know, Frank asks about the computer error in the 9000 series. But Hal's like, nah, we're perfect for reals. Uh, Dave's like, okay, Groovy, glad you're perfect, dude. Also, Frank, you mind coming down to the pod to check something out just real quick right over here? Yeah. They get in the pod. Inside, they turn off all external comms and check to make sure Hal can't hear them. Frank's got a bad feeling about Hal. Dave, too. They figure to prove Hal wrong, but the part all all they got to do is put it back, you know, change out, with, basically follow through with the plan they've already working on. And, you know, when it doesn't fail, they're like, aha, Hal, you're wrong, man. Frank's got a strange feeling about Hal. All the while, Hal's looking at them through the window. Frank presses on about what to do if Hal is, is in fact busted. Hal controls the whole ship, after all. So they'd have to disconnect him, cut off his higher functions, and keep the lower functions in place. Dave also talks about what Hal might think about them pulling the plug. Meanwhile, Hal watches, reading their lips. He knows! EVA time. Frank in the pod this time while Dave monitors. More heavy breathing. Frank leaves the pod and drifts towards the dish. Then his pod turns around. It lowers its arms and goes for Frank. Dave sees Frank tumbling away. His O2 line is pulled and he struggles to get it reattached. The pod tumbles off as well as Frank goes still. Dave tells Hal to ready pod 3 for EVA. They pushes Hal for info, but he's not talking. Dave goes on out in the pod, sans helmet, to pursue Frank. He catches up, grabs Frank by the pod's arms, and starts back to the ship. Meanwhile, Hal proceeds to kill the hibernating crew, because why not? Open the pod da- bay doors, Hal. Dave's back and he wants in. But, I'm sorry, Dave, says Hal. I can't do that. Hal declares that the mission is too important for Dave to disrupt it, and he knows about the disconnect plan. Dave tells Hal he'll go in through the emergency airlock. Hal points out that without his helmet, that might be a little tricky. Hal hangs up. Dave lets Frank go and positions the pod by the airlock. He opens the airlock, turns the pod around, and lines up the doors. After tense moments of readying the explosive bolts of the pod's hatch, he throws the switch and is rocketed into the airlock and into vacuum. He bounces off the far end back and hits the switch to get a breath of fresh air. Hal watches. Dave puts on a helmet and heads to the computer core while Hal asks him what's up. Hal pleads that he did, he hasn't been right, but that he's totally going to be okay again, and he feels much better, for sure. Dave opens the logic memory center and heads on in while Hal keeps pleading. Dave zero G's into a red room filled with slots and all the surfaces. Dave uses a key to pull out glass modules from the slots. As he works, Hal's words grow slow and slurred. Hal talks of him his mind going. He can feel it. He's afraid. Hal introduces himself and gives some facts about himself. And he has a song to sing if you'd like to hear it. Geppin, would you like to hear it? Sure. Okay, I, I don't actually have it in front of me. It's called <laughs> Daisy, by the way. <laughs> so Hal sings Daisy. How do you not have that memorized? Like, I've, I've had that song memorized since I was five, just through cultural osmosis. You know, Daisy, Daisy, um, something, something, something. <laughs> Also, there's a second verse to that song in which Daisy turns the guy down. Good on her. (laughs) 
Um, so as Hal's singing, his words grow slow and uh, grow deep, and Dave continues to work. And then he growls to an end. Hal is deactivated. And then Dave hears, Good day, gentlemen. He looks over to see a pre-recorded briefing on his mission. It's Dr. Floyd again, here to explain that now that they, everybody's awake and at Jupiter, 18 months ago they discovered intelligent life, and here's all the backstory, and it sent some radio missions to Jupiter, that's why they're going, and that's why they're there. So, you know, go check that out, guys. Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite. The creepy music is back as we pan down to the gas giant, and as we see a reflection of light, a monolith comes into view. Large and floating in space near a moon, Discovery Club comes into view nearby. The blackness of the monolith makes it hard to see other than through direct reflections from the sun as it tumbles through space. The visuals of it, the ship, the planet, the moon, are haunting and unsettling. A pod emerges from the Discovery. The pod approaches the massive monolith. We pan up from the view of what is and enter what is beyond. Flecks of light start streaming at us from Dave's perspective. So we switch occasionally to a view of his face as he endures the vibrations and the sights. The lights grow bright and have wonderful patterns as we get deeper, further, beyond. This is the psychedelic part that everyone remembers. Yeah. The sequence is just so beyond words. You should really see it for yourself. Yeah. Also, hand animated. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's like several different techniques they're sort of using uh, the various bits here. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's, you know, hand animated stuff and some tricksy photography on the, some other bits and like filters on like landscapes and it's it's craziness. I, it's just something that I recommend everyone see at least once. And then Dave is somewhere. The pod is in a room with lights on the floor. It's white and very amber posh. The pod sits amongst the furniture. He looks out and sees a man in a spacesuit. It's him, older, grayer, wrinkles on his face. The pod is gone, and this older Dave is now Dave now. He walks across the room and into the bathroom. He looks in the mirror and sees he's aged. His eyes express shock. He looks in the main room again and sees an old man having a meal. There are spacesuit breathing sounds, but then they fade away. The old man in the robe turns around to look at where Dave was, and we see that this is a much older Dave, and this is now Dave now. He gets up from his food and comes over to where the Dave in the suit had been, looks around, sees he's not there, and turns back. He sits and gets ready to return to his meal, after biting docks his glass off the table. It breaks and he goes for it. But he pauses as he knows that there's a very, very old man in the bed. It is Dave, and it is Dave now. The very, very old man lifts his hand and points to something beyond the foot of the bed. It's the monolith. It stands before him. Dave is a being in a bubble. A star child. Soft, unborn, and ever-looking. We zoom onto the monolith. The moon is in view. We pan down to see the Earth. Dave, now the star child, slowly comes into view from the side as we pan. Dave watches the Earth, and we watch Dave as the movie ends. Space baby. Space baby! (laughs) 
which uh, even Space Ghost Coast to Coast, I think, did at one point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a spice baby. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a pretty trippy uh, end of the movie. Yeah, I don't <laughs> understand. This is one of those times we keep we keep watching these kinds of things that are like the classic everyone in the world must see this movie it's remembered as the cinematic masterpiece da 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 or and or my entire childhood yeah and i watch it <laughs> and i go am i human because like this was a failure on almost every level as a film and i don't understand overall i have to disagree um and this is like a rare occurrence when we're like probably going to have like a very divergent uh so I have opinions here on Watches of Tomorrow, so I guess mark your calendars, guys. <laughs> um, so yeah, I actually have to disagree. Uh, the there, uh, I think part of it might be informed by my experiences uh, with sequel and sequel novels. Um, so I, I guess maybe I have a little bit more sort of to work with. And also, when I was quite young, I saw it like five times. So. <laughs> So I guess I had uh, a little bit more opportunity to sort of digest it from a, a an impressionable age to sort of get a general uh, feel and vibe of sort of what's going on. The super short version of what's going on is Monolith shows up in ancient times, um, probably helps some uh, early hominids figure out tool use. Later, we're in the near future. Yeah, humans uh, discover a monolith on the moon. It sends a signal to Jupiter. They send a spacecraft to go check it out. On the way, the computer goes a little bit um, uh, uh, nutty uh, because it, you know, they're, you know, the uh, crew that is awake has been not told what the mission is, and the computer's like, ah, you you um, you, uh, you cannot jeopardize the mission. This is too important, etc., etc. They shut down Hal, um, and then Dave goes and carries the monolith and is both brought into it and also pushed beyond, and uh, similar to how the. Uh, you know, the, the early hominids were sort of pushed to the next level. Uh, this is him also being pushed to the next level and is becoming some sort of super psychic entity being. That's the short, short version. Everybody talks about this movie like, well, you don't like it because you don't understand what's going on. But well, I got, yeah, I, 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 I like got yeah, you, all you of got, that. You, yeah, you, you clearly understand it. Yeah. But, you know, so so, so where are, what are your critiques here? Well, the thing is just so badly made as a movie. Like, the visuals are very pretty, but as a, like, way of doing film, it just fails utterly. It doesn't really communicate anything. It intentionally doesn't communicate things, which is an artistic style that you can pull off, but not really in this kind of medium easily. Like, you would probably need to go back to some of the old Dadaist uh, visual experiments. And, like, my main thing is that it's just, it's it's basically the best description that I heard recently when I was talking to this, about this with someone, is that this is kind of when someone, like, that old trope of when someone catches you smoking a cigarette and goes, well, you're going to have to smoke the entire case of cigarettes until you hate it, but for space. <laughs> it's like oh did you think space travel was cool and exciting well here is two hours of spaceships being the most boring thing possible carrying the two most boring humans alive now now, now frank's 
only kind of boring on the surface. If you actually got to know him, actually, uh, you don't do that in the movie. Never mind. <laughs> and I, I completely understand what they were going for because it was obviously very, very intentional to make it like slow and methodical and be like, this is what real space travel is like. It is boring as all tech. And also look how disaffected and out of touch with humanity being in space has made these two people to the point where the computer is acting more human than they are. So I get that it was a cinematic choice, but it was very badly implemented to the point that it just made the movie impossible to sit through. There is a lot of it that is very, very, very drawn out. And that is perhaps, you know, you know, a, you know, a, a critique that I'll be happy to throw at it. And there are a number of sequences that are, you know, great. It's like, okay, I'm sort of getting a chance to sort of take in fully what's being presented here in this environment. But okay, now I'm done doing that. And there's there's things that you on. can <laughs> do with it, but there's so many weird little things. Like you like everyone talks about the music and the music and the visuals going together. But the music and the visuals don't go together. It basically adds epic music to very, very boring things that don't match up in any particularly meaningful way. So you were every time that they use the the music from the docking sequence, every time they use that in a parody, like in the Simpsons space episode, mm-hmm. yep. they sync the music up to the action so that it makes visual sense for the music to be playing at the time. But in this case, not quite. It, yeah, it's sort of like we're just playing a waltz so we can say that we're having the, the waltz of spacecraft flying about, but we're not really sort of, you know, making the spacecraft dance. And in fact, from some interviews that I heard kind of by happenstance a month or so ago, this movie was scored like by someone with original music. And then when he was making... Get during the editing, Kubrick started playing the coincidentally royalty-free uh, orchestra music over it, and was like, "Oh my God, this syncs up so well!" So I guess you know, bugger that guy who wrote all the music for this thing. <laughs> so maybe, maybe it did sync up better in Kub- you know, for Kubrick's longer version somehow, and then the cutting desynced it, and then he probably should have just gone with the original music anyway. So, so we can shake our fist at Cooper. This may be very <laughs> slightly nitpicky, but the the match cut in the beginning, the the like most famous match cut in cinematic history, where you throw up the bone and it becomes the spacecraft, isn't a match cut. They didn't get the angles to match up right. Yeah, it's a little off. It's <laughs> off, and it's just why is it off? You had the bone there, and the spaceship is a model. It's not like you had to take a picture of an actual spaceship and sort of get it to work. Like, you had a model, and you composited it over a background. You could have made it match. But what if Kubrick was a time traveler, and this was actually from a future (laughs) that did exist until he made the movie? (laughs) And the main thing was, like, you can use the slowness. Like, I wouldn't have had a problem with it being slow and drawn out. Except every single part of it is slow and drawn out. You go from like, here is a very, very slow panning shot of a spaceship. Here's a very, very slow panning shot of another spaceship going exactly the same speed. And now we're going to transition into a third shot, which I'm pretty sure is the first shot of the spaceship that we just saw a minute ago. 
So there's just so <laughs> much padding. This is a 30-minute movie that's two and a half hours long. Yes. So, yeah, I, I do have to agree with your, your critique there. Um, now, though, sometimes I do enjoy just sort of sitting back and just sort of taking it in, um, even if I get, do get part of the parts. <laughs> I could see some of that. Like, it may have been because I had a very busy week and I had to kind of work in watching this movie over two days before we recorded it. So you're like, come on, let's get to the the, the main thing. Okay, okay. <laughs> also, it bu- it bugs me that you have when people do these kinds of like, oh, this movie asks so many questions. We don't even know the answers to these questions or what the questions were supposed to be because we didn't bother putting any of them in it's kind of like we made a movie where we didn't think about what the point or messaging was supposed to be but instead we said we did it on purpose there was to be a message of sorts but then they took it out (laughs) (laughs) yeah there is uh in one of the earlier uh, drafts i think it was um the uh when uh, dave goes uh, full space baby there uh he was supposed to return to earth and actually uh, all those uh, satellites and things like that you see at the uh, you know early in the movie, uh, a bunch of those are actually carrying nukes, and he was going to destroy those. So he's supposed to go full Doctor Manhattan on them. A little bit, <laughs> but uh, the science like uh, this maybe seem a little depressing, and uh, I think that bit actually uh, is kept in the novel. Again, I didn't finish it, um, so so you know do take that with a giant grain of salt. But uh, you know the there was, I guess, confusion about the end of the novel then because people thought the Earth was destroyed too, but it's just the satellites. Yeah, and apparently in this version of the universe, the Cold War is still happening. Yes. <laughs> in fact, uh, that becomes uh, a bit of a sticking point in the uh, the sequel. I want to touch on that real quick. Sure, I, I read the Wikipedia synopsis of the sequel. So. <laughs> well, the, uh, the sequel is uh, 2010, the... Uh, day we took made contact or something like that anyway um so the it's like well we don't really know what happened to the previous mission we know the discovery is kind of dead in space and the russians is like we got a spaceship let's go and so they they go and they bring some of the americans with then they uh they go visit the monolith and they uh, visit the you know the discovery and discover like oh yeah it's here dave's not here man um and they turn on Hal. they figure out what was up with him uh and then the monolith goes missing, and then suddenly Jupiter's turning into a star, and they need to escape real quick, and at uh, the end. Yeah, the aliens turned <laughs> Jupiter into a star, and then said, Europa's ours now, off-limits, go away. Yeah, there's something special about that one. Go away. You are, you know, All these words, worlds are yours, but that one. Which seems like it kind of, doesn't that kind of contradict the thing they were doing with the first film, where they're evolving humanity? Now they're like, yes. nope, this bit's ours. Bugger off. But there's a reason for that that pops up in uh, the, uh, the the sequel novel, 2061. <laughs> <laughs> you see, there is a, uh, uh, you, know, you know, a life that was on the verge of becoming intelligent on uh, Europa. And uh, turning Jupiter into a sun is not only going to help us, but also going to help them. And then they can start their own civilization. Great. And then we get another Cold War. Eh, yeah, not quite. Uh, there's still, you know, still early civilization uh, in the, the, the final book of the series, 3001. Yay! <laughs> uh, in that one, uh, the uh, you know, so so you know, you had Dave Bowman, right, and uh, Frank Poole on the Discovery, right? Hmm. Well, they find Frank Poole and they revive him oh. after a thousand years. <laughs> Goody. 
Um, and he's like, well, this is weird. I'm in the future now. And they have some culture shock. Um, they go do some research on the monolith. They make contact with Dave man. And Hal's also been absorbed in the monolith through all this, through various reasons. Um, and they figure out that, okay, the monoliths are a devices sent by some unknown galaxy, maybe even universe spanning uh, intelligence or civilization or something that is intent on not just uh, quote uplifting uh, beings to you know greater you know, you know, you know more more complexity you know building societies etc cetera, etc cetera, but also occasionally judging them because apparently at some point they had been uh, you know getting some signals that maybe this one planet uh, this one star over there uh, had some uh, a civilization about it and then suddenly their star went nova even though it shouldn't have. Isn't that weird? So the weird, vengeful god aliens. A little bit. <laughs> well, they, uh, they, they they put it together. It's like, oh, so there might be some sort of central control system that's making decisions of this sort. And it might be judging us throughout this last, you know, uh, you know, the, the rest of, you know, since, you know, four million years ago. And, uh, well, might be time for that the judgment finally comes about. And they decide, okay, so maybe maybe we're gonna be okay. Maybe the given the uh, uh, time of flight, uh, the the central controller system is about to come back with their thoughts on how twentieth century Earth was, and you know that whole you know World War Two era, all the Cold War stuff, all that sort of nastiness, and that might not look good on our report card. And so they decide we're gonna take down the monoliths. And then they all die. Well, you know, they actually are successful, but you know, they got a, got a space baby on their, on their side and it helps. <laughs> but I, I, I maybe gave, gave the whole spoilers there, but it's actually kind of a fun read. Um, yeah. So now, you know, the rest of the story kind of a little bit more behind the scenes stuff. So that's the answers to all the questions. <laughs> the, the thing is that the, in the, in the movie is it's presented. They're not really giving us anything. There's some very, very light themes of evolution mm -hmm. and what humanity is going to become and kind of this weird contrast between us inventing new life forms in the forms of artificial intelligence and becoming more and more robotic ourselves, mm -hmm. which is just weirdly done. Because it's only those two dudes. Everybody they show on the news and in the family calls and things is fine. Yeah, like they're so, normal yeah, people. people. Yeah, but these guys—they're totally on mission. We are being spacemen. We are being—you know—we are going to follow the books. We are going to have recreation time. But even that is pretty kind of stilted. It's kind just of the doctors. But then, if I don't know, if they're doing like a judgy, oh my god, the war might not look so good to us thing. The, the the only other thing you can all like almost connect from the movie though it's like probably a coincidence because they set up the scenes so badly as that maybe the monolith thing may have taught us to be violent perhaps you know inciting us to uh you know use tools to knock each other up and if that's the case then it's their fault that there was wars yeah so uh these hypocritic monoliths make us kill people and that's just that's just 
stupid message and I hate it and I'm sick of it. Yeah. <laughs> the whole like all of human evolution is driven by by male testosterone and violence, which is an actual quote from the freaking documentary I watched. They had some person in there who I swear was an objectivist. Yeah, I, I very much disagree with that sort of messaging there. Um, yeah, the so so I said I vote. You know, this a lot of this uh, film is sort of I guess foundational for where I started as far as my thoughts about science fiction. But I will say that I've definitely evolved since a lot of this stuff because yeah well, you know that kind of notions like yeah i don't really jive with that at all so i did think it was fun one of the things i read that they wanted to do scientifically accurate early humans but they couldn't figure out a way to film them and not get an x rating for the nudity yep <laughs> it's like eh, just add more fur it's gonna be fine <laughs> go funky full monkey suit also it bugs me that the so the stupid humanity invented weapons thing. Like, as far as we can tell from any anthropological evidence that we have, tools are never originally made as weaponry. They are, like, in the other, like, three examples of tool-using animals we have that developed it spontaneously and not in a lab, they have all used it to get bugs out of holes. I need to poke something into this other thing in order to get the treat. So that is like almost certainly the first tool because that is how it has happened in like every species we have observed using tools. Mm -hmm. Not no, no freaking crow or chimp picks up a bone and goes, Oh, I can bash another chimp over the head with this because if you're at that point and you can't already rip each other in half, you you run away from things. Those are your two options before you have tools: is you run away from stuff, or you're strong enough to rip it in half. And um, you know, this the, the first group at the watering hole there uh, definitely seemed of the running away sort, though they were very much capable, given that they are pretty much the same species as the goes the folks that were invading, to also be you know angry, shout, and punch each other if need be. Yeah, that didn't make any sense that why they did nothing to really demonstrate why the one tribe of monkey people was so much timider than the other tribe of monkey people until they invented the gun. <laughs> now I'm a monkey with a gun. Oh god. <laughs> and just the whole like like that that stupid jump cut that I mentioned earlier. They like um, they don't say it in the film, but I guess according to the novels and the script, that thing that it, that the bone cuts into is supposed to be an orbital weapons platform, which is supposed to just tie into this, like, oh, all of human technology is weapons. Which is not true. Yeah. But it is the obvious thing for folks of certain personalities and persuasions because that's what they think about, but it's far from the totality of human civilization. We are not designed inherently to be murder machines. And then the entire ending is a freaking like our new creation has decided that if it's going to survive, it has to kill the things that are trying to kill it. And then the, per the people are going, well, if I'm going to survive, I have to kill this thing that's trying to kill me. So, yep. you know, violence is the only way to solve anything. Yeah, though in 3001, the uh, solution ends up being computer virus. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers again. Sorry. <laughs> so they basically just took the Independence Day route. 
a little bit, but bef- uh, was this written before or after uh, Independence Day? I forget. Um, it was the mid nineties though, so <laughs> so maybe. Um, but yeah, the uh, they they actually have a scene in in three thousand one where they like, hmm, yeah, we kind of want some way to be able to tackle this thing because. The monolith is still a technology a thousand years in our future, so beyond us that we cannot possibly begin to understand it. But we think it might be some sort of computer. At least that's what the disembodied voices of Hal and Dave are telling us. Okay. Well, I just looked it up and 3001 came out a year after Independence Day. Oh, so maybe it was inspired by, hmm. Also, God is a computer is the plot of an Asimov short story. Um... There, some of these similar uh, themes also pop up in the Romna series, which, uh, you know, would be fun to talk about, but they don't have a movie yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I generally enjoyed that series. Uh, the first book was uh, written by Clark, but he only was like editor for the others. Uh, uh, so it de- definitely changes as far as focus and uh, scope. Um, but anywho, um, back to 2001. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think the other, my main just, critique of the thing aside from it just being slow like there's definite cinematic issues but even in the documentary i watched that interviewed several actors and clark and like just a bunch of people who were involved in this like every single one of them could only talk about how accurate they got the technology from the perspective of the time period and to me that is just the single most mind-numbingly boring use of science fiction as a concept yep saying like (laughs) so you know the bell corporation invented a video phone three years ago what if we take video phones and go what if everyone used video phones oh my god look at me doing futurist things yeah man and it's not super interesting yeah it is the single most boring thing that you can use science fiction for. And for some reason, it's the only thing that 90% of people want to talk about. And I, I will guarantee you, they would have invented cell phones whether or not they had the flip communicator in Star Trek. Maybe it would have had a different design originally, but uh, it would be still the same thing. Well, they didn't look anything like flip communicator. Like, the original cell phones were massive bricks that didn't appear in any sci-fi movie. Well, you know, maybe in, in you know, the massive bricks would actually have been flip phones. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, as far as like uh, in my own science fiction writing, uh, you know, some of it is more on the hard sci-fi and that stuff. I'm, you know, yeah, yes, there is a this stuff is plausible given that we what we know is is doable. Um, but I try to even yeah use that sort of stuff as interesting restrictions, not necessarily oh this is a wonderful vision of the future and I am just being uncreative with it. I want something that is. Yeah, you know, in those particular instances, something that is, you know, quote believable, but is also set up there for a purpose. So it's less. I'm going to have my video phone. I'm going to have my video phone because that's going to be, you know, for some reason integral integral to the plot. Um, you know, someone going to, you know, not hear the conversation, but is going to be able to see it from across the room and like pull a howl and read lip or something, uh, lip read or something like that. Yeah, even though the stupid, I don't know, that you just are going to have science magic. It's unavoidable if you're writing future stuff. And trying to frame your entire thing 
around we're going to avoid science magic it not only limits you creatively to such an extent that you can't do anything interesting but also winds up with boring stuff where it's like look at how our spaceship lands in such a realistic way the scene of them landing on the freaking moon takes 20 minutes yep <laughs> and then they land on the moon and you're like oh my god it's finally over and then they cut to the spaceship being lowered down into a hangar for another five minutes yep <laughs> And so it's like, well, this is kind of pretty to look at, but I'm done looking at it. Um, also, I understand it was a film thing that was necessary so that they didn't have to have everyone on wires all the time. But no one would ever use grip shoes in a spacecraft. Why would you walk very slowly with grippy shoes when you can move way faster by flying around? And you'd still feel weightless either way. Yeah. <laughs> the grippy shoes would probably just make you more sick. It's like, well, now I'm kind of weightless and stuck to things at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, the the Expanse uh, sort of has magnetic boots and things like that. Uh, you know, but also other par parts where it's like, yeah, we're not going to use those. We're actually going to go uh, full zero G here. And it is... Yeah, and, and, the, and there's also the sort of the middle times where it's like, where we have sort of effective gravity because we're accelerating. Yeah, well, the one time that they should have used sticky shoes, they didn't when they were being outside of the spacecraft. So, so which I guess gets to something else I want to sort of, you know, uh, draw us a little bit of attention to here is that space is very, very, very big. So big that, you know, it's like you go down to the corner shop and you're like, that took a while. That took me like you know, a few minutes but like that times a trillion. I was going to start quoting. I was going to start quoting hitchhikers. <laughs> but uh, there is uh, one moment where it was an outside view of the discovery and there was a small rock floating by. You know how unlikely that is? That was probably just them going through the asteroid belt, I guess, which makes it the most realistic asteroid belt I've ever seen in a movie. True. <laughs> Because, you know, the asteroid belts you'd see in, say, uh, Star Wars are so dense that they'd probably would be collapsing. Yeah, they're basically protoplanets. Yes. <laughs> That's a, uh, it's either something is coming together or something recently exploded. Either way, it's not going to be there for very long. It's, uh, you know, even though these are, uh, you know, mountain-sized rocks and not full planets, they still have gravity and they do attract each other. And so they will coalesce uh, given enough time. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon. Sorry, I went to uh, Casablanca there. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's not science fiction. Let's get back into uh, the <laughs> there. So just over. I don't know where else to go with this because I I like leveled my cinematic qualms with it, and I talked about the only like small ounce of meaning you can possibly try to take from the thing because they intentionally gave it no meaning so that people would go like oh my god i don't understand it brilliant well we could also uh talk about you know we've already, you know, we've touched a little bit on you know the the influences it's done and sort of uh homages and references and things like that but maybe we could talk about how it's sort of spawned science fiction as uh, of this sort as a genre you know, no longer just, you know, zap guns and guys in, uh, you know, monster suits running around. But, you know, there's there's something weird going on and stuff is happening. I mean, it did. It is one of the earlier ones to do that. But like, like original Star Trek came out 
first. Yes. It's not like this is the first time that they ever did, you know, non-pulp sci-fi shows. This is probably the first one that turned it into spaceship porn. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, you know, definitely, uh, you know, uh, emphasis on the models here. And, you know, the, the model work is fantastic, by the way. It is. Um, Though in my head, I kept comparing it to Star Wars models, which isn't fair because that was, you know, 10 years later. Yeah. Um, I also was thinking a little bit about Spaceballs for various reasons. <laughs> Not just because of the hats. <laughs> well, I did kind of like that they put they put all the women in turbans so that they wouldn't have to deal with zero-G hair. True. <laughs> Very convenient. <laughs> now, uh, I, I guess it is also a little telling that there is, you know, kind of only one uh, lady character who has any lines here, and that's the, the Russian. There are three women who show up who are not stewardesses. Yes. They are all Russian scientists. Yes. Which I guess is just, oh my god, those crazy communists are letting women do science. <laughs> oh no. Whatever shall we do? Question mark. <laughs> yeah, but this, I guess in some ways it is a little telling in the attitudes of how science uh, was uh, so, sort of uh, running at the time, and unfortunately kind of still is. Uh, that the Soviet Union was actually much better at having gender gender equality in the sciences because there's less, you know, this is a man's thing where you have the strong jaw and you you ladies have to be you know uh, toiling in the kitchen and stuff like the you know it's, you know sort of the stereotypical of you in the Americas, um, but is you know sort of like yeah you we're all part of the the state here we're going to be doing the thing and you guys know. What's you know your math here, and you know some of you are ladies, so you're now getting, you know, you know ushered into the uh, this you know, the, the the university over here and to have at it and become engineers. Well, as everyone's learning now with those like couple of movies they're making, all of the math in the U.S. was still done by women. They just like didn't get any credit for it. You know, but you know, you know, doing calculations that's that's not action. It's not adventure. It's not being on the rocket man. You, you, you know, it's, it's, it's sitting behind a desk and, and toiling for hours on end. So obviously the strong guys can't be doing that, right? Yeah, that, that's what made this movie so boring. <laughs> like we've got, we've got, you know, square jaw, boring man, one and two, and possibly three if you count the doctor dude from the beginning, but he was indistinguishable for the other. It took me 20 minutes to figure out we'd switched characters. Yeah. <laughs> Oh no! Uh, Doctor Floyd is an older guy. Uh, pulls the uh, you know Mitchell, of course, from Star Trek, and uh, Dave is the guy with the really kind of intense eyes. And not like I know that these are better actors. They were intentionally told to underact. Yes, tone it down, guys. Yeah, which just they they're just the most boring, competent man. They're not even an interesting, <laughs> stupid, competent man like Kirk, where everything just works out. They are the two most boring people alive. Uh, I guess it's a, an attempt, sort of, to do the blank slate thing, but it doesn't really work for people these days. At least this not this sort of type of blank slate guy. I'm not sure. I don't think they were supposed to be blank slates. I think it was supposed to be a like stylistic. Um counterpoint to the computer having emotions 
Hmm, They're like, oh, does the computer have emotions? I don't know. I don't have emotions, so I cannot recognize them in other people. <laughs> so I guess maybe here's, uh, you know, maybe my last probing question. Do you think Hal has emotions? Well, I don't know. We've discussed the AI thing before. And basically, at the end of the day, it doesn't particularly matter. True. Like, <laughs> there's, there's no way to prove that either you or I have emotions. We don't have a test for emotions. We don't have a definition of what emotions even are. First, well, we need to uh, define what an emotion is, and then we can decide whether something has it. Exactly, yeah. But I will say that uh, Hal at least seems worried about his own existence. Yeah, he's, he's willing to kill for it. Andy says that he's afraid to die, which is, you know, the computer cares more about living than either of the people in this movie do. Well, we, we got a job to do, I guess. We should probably be alive for it, I guess. Let's 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 be alive. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Hal. <laughs> like I know they took it as kind of a stylistic parody, but this just reminds me of Captain Simeon and the Space Monkeys, where some aliens were going to hyper evolve the first Earth organism that got there, and instead of it being a human, it was a chimp and they hyper-evolved the chimp. This seems like the people on board the spacecraft killed the actual intelligent and empathetic character that was supposed to get evolved, and they got involved by accident. Yep. <laughs> it's like, oh no, we've uplifted the wrong one. Also, hmm. this is, like, maybe it's a commentary on how we shouldn't let, like, basically psychopaths be the people on the front lines of things in case of an intelligent alien decides to hyper-involve the first person they see. So it might be a, a bad ambas uh, ambassador for our future. Because they, they showed, like I said, they showed people on Earth being normal. All the Russians seemed normal. Mm -hmm. Square jaw boring man gets to be the space god. He seems less of an asshole later, by the way. But anyway. <laughs> you made me wish, like, I wish this was Cheech and Chong. At least it would have been interesting. Cheech and Chong versus the monolith. <laughs> I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. Dave's not here, man. <laughs> I, I've sort of run out of uh, the things I wanted to sort of poke at here. You got anything else? Well, I think I, that I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's no other things you can derive from this movie. It was anthropologically wrong. <laughs> And that bugs me for a movie that's talking about how right it got all its science. So I, I guess for me then, in some ways, it was in itself a, a monolith event that started me on my path of wonder through the world of science fiction, an encounter. Then, then I realized, oh, but I could be more than what it's trying to call me to be. Hmm. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> The original production design for the monolith was supposed to be a screen that played informational videos. <laughs> so, uh, like the, uh, the the sphere computer from uh, the, uh, the 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 more recent uh, Time Machine movie. Sweet. <laughs> it was supposed to show up to to the pre-humans and play them videos on how to make tools and fire. I recall there be, being something like a, a glass pyramid that did something uh, a little bit different, but I didn't you know, realize it was that specific. <laughs> yeah, it would. I mean, I wish they could have seen. What if they did it? What like at the time? Let's see, late sixties. So they would have had those awful, awful like government issue 
propaganda-y informational films. Oh, I've been glorious. <laughs> with bad voiceover. <laughs> but it's all in, uh, you know, screaming monkey sounds. Yeah. Like, little Timmy <laughs> has found himself lost in the woods, but thankfully, Timmy remembered his Boy Scout manual on how to make fire. <laughs> you know, the image yeah, animation of two sticks rubbing against each other interlaced with what the, you know, the, the hominids doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, do be careful. Fire is hot. <laughs> oh, but it's so silly. Hmm. <laughs> so, want to do the game show bit? Yes, we've, we've milked this for all it's worth, so I think it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Hey everybody! Welcome to the uh, game show portion of the show, where we got uh, ourselves, uh, uh, you know, a, a number of uh, uh, you know, prizes to hand out. The first one is the Awkward Cover Story Award, which goes to Doctor Floyd and Company for the cover story of a deadly virus running rampant, with you know, that will no doubt distress everybody back on Earth that they're you know, fearing that their families are probably dead. What does he win, uh, uh, Gepwin? Floyd wins the inciting of the outbreak of the hot war because you certainly couldn't blame the russians for inciting some amount of hostility if they think the americans are going to bring down the space plague from the moon hmm yeah let's let's not be doing that dr floyd um how about you get on to that you know revealing to the public sooner rather than later our second uh, award which is is the space baby award which goes to dave of course for becoming exactly this what does he win Gepwin? dave the space baby wins a placenta he can't eat in that thing. Yeah, there's only so much good vibes and uh, modelists can give you as far as your nutrition, uh, you know, uh, you know, needs are. Our third award, which is garbage in murder out, which is the prize going to Hal for his perfect interpretation of the notion that the mission is the most important thing of all time, and you know, the crew probably shouldn't have gotten the way of that. So, Gepwin, what does he win? Hal wins some human-sized mouse traps. If he'd gotten rid of that danged human infestation earlier, none of this would have happened. I think you might, yeah, 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 that's a, a you know great idea. Just put one of those uh, right in the airlock. Would have you know would have taken care of Dave no problem. Our fourth award is the Menacing Geometry Award, which goes to the Monolith for just being so dang spooky. When does it win, Gepwin? The monolith wins a bottle of Windex and a buffer to keep it just all that smooth and shiny. Yeah, it needs to be its, uh, you know, sparkling clean, shiny and reflective for all time. Otherwise, you'll be able to make, make definition in it. But the original bad. version of the monolith should win the Teletubby Award. <laughs> again, again. Original version of the monolith, not present. <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll go and give it to the, you know, the Teletubby Award to the, the original monolith. <laughs> Our uh, final uh, uh, prize is the Z-Rust Award, which goes to Kubrick and Clark in unison for presenting us a future that seems very plausible at the time, but, you know, we didn't quite get the space plane thing going on. What do they win, Gepwin? They win some interesting retro-futurist furniture. The style was neat. Mid-century spaceships are kind of cool. This is also why... My point about this being boring science fiction comes in. Because if you try to guess the future, you either got it right or you didn't. So in 20 years, we either go, good job, or that was dumb. And I think they, um, a little bit more of the, that was dumb sort at this point. Though I would like a moon base at some point. 
though maybe a little bit more high speed. Anyway, Gepwin, take us away. <laughs> oh, thank you for all of our contestants and all of you for joining us here on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. Woo! Do you want to live on the moon? Uh, no. Okay. The moon is a harsh <laughs> mistress. And it's kind of dull there and uh, slightly radioactive, too. Yeah. I don't know what you do except jump around. <laughs> that, that, that reminds me. One, one thing I forgot to, to mention earlier. Uh, space is not only big, but when you're outside the Earth's magnetic field, you're going to be exposed to the full brunt of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the solar wind. So... Maybe that's part of why the design of the discovery was like so long. Fun, deadly, was, deadly radiation. Maybe it was like generating some sort of a magnetic field or something like that with the the length of it, those big electromagnets or something. I don't know. All right. So for as as like accurate and scientificy as they were trying to be with this stupid thing, where was the spinny bit? Uh, inside the uh the bulb up front. Yeah, because it didn't seem like it matched up like scale wise given how big the hangar bay thing was that took up half of the big dome nope <laughs> i think maybe it's supposed to be wedged between the hangar bay and like the uh, the flight uh control cockpit at the top maybe but i'm not sure all right so yeah the, the the spinny bit is a little bit larger than it probably you know you know should be as far as the uh, scale of the model goes so yeah i'll have to go with it yeah i'll have to agree with you there also we didn't mention it but i get it you used the moving set thing. Like you, you built a rotating set that they've been building for special effects in movies for 50 years. Good job. You don't need to use it in every shot. Yep. <laughs> use it once. We go, ooh, they built a rotating set. How'd they get that guy to dance on the ceiling? Crazy, man. He must be magical. It's not like it was a comedy routine they did 20 years before this. Yeah, I, I left out my synopsis like the uh, lady walking up the wall sort of bit which mm. takes five minutes and <laughs> it's like yeah this is kind of cool to look at wish it was on its own this once in the entire movie as opposed to like five times always anyway. spinning spinning towards the future A forward not backward upward not forward and always twirling 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 towards freedom <laughs> also the episode that we that we get the classic what is this some kind of tube yes <laughs> Yeah, it's it's amazing how many of those uh, you know, quotes in that particular episode I quote randomly. Hmm. All right, next next week, <laughs> we're back to Star Trek, and we're not coming in on what sounds like a particularly good episode. Nope, it's uh, something involving a virus or amoeba or something. It's space amoeba, it's mm. amoeba. So more energy things in space. We're coming on to the immunity syndrome. Wait, isn't being immune to something good? Yeah, and a syndrome is just a cluster of un otherwise unrelated symptoms. Yeah, this doesn't make any sense. But does it make more sense than 2001 A Space Odyssey? I don't know. Space amoebas we'll probably <laughs> don't. I mean, maybe the space amoeba was what sent the monoliths. Now we know the rest of the story. <laughs> the disappearance of a Vulcan ship leads the wary Enterprise crew to battle with a huge space organism. So back to the, uh, the ray guns and uh, action adventures. Let's see, we got that, one, two, we've got like, 
after that we've got like 10 episodes before I, a episode name that i recognize and i only recognize it because it's possibly the worst episode of all time uh-oh is it spock's brain yes it is spock's brain <laughs> well then <laughs> <laughs> but we got a while till that i think we get a time travel episode after oh no next after that is is something called private little war oh um that one sounds familiar. Yeah, that's another racist one, uh -oh. I think. Dang it, classic Star Trek. Why you do this? Then there's some sort of alien possessing thing. Then there's Nazi Planet. Yeah. So Nazi Planet's coming. With Kirk and his full regalia there. That's Spock fun. Spock too. Anyway, yeah. next week, we battle space amoebas on Watches of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow... Space Amoeba Vampires Strike Again! Oh no! You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>